Please open your Bible with me to Judges chapter 11. We uh, have looked at the first part of this story, but I'd like to conclude it tonight with the oppression of the Ammonites against Israel. And um, the Israelites turned to the Lord for help, but they done that before. Promised to repent, said they'd serve the Lord, and well, they were just hurting and wanted deliverance, and so this time the Lord just said, well, just let your idols deliver you. The gods you've chosen, let, you, since you like them so much, why don't you let them take care of it? Oh no, Lord, but we want you. And uh, the Lord did not this time raise up a deliverer for them. They found their own. They found a man that they'd treated about the same way they treated the Lord. Jephthah, a man that had been run off by his half-brothers because he was the son of a, a harlot. And um, they didn't want to share the inheritance with him. But then when they got in trouble, they looked to him as a tough guy who could fight off the Ammonites. And uh, he bargained with them somewhat. and They agreed to make him their head if he'd fight off the Ammonites for them. So he agreed. And that's basically where we uh, ended. The next section, which will start in chapter 11, verse 12, is the conversation between Jephthah and the Ammonites. And in this conversation, Jephthah is going to defend the rights of the Israelites to the land that the Ammonites were trying to get. Now, I want to say a few things to begin with tonight about the Ammonites. I think this is sort of interesting, and we'll try to draw sort of a point from this. The Ammonites originated in Genesis 19 when Lot escaped from Sodom and Gomorrah and ended up having an immoral relationship with his daughters, and they gave birth to Moab and Ammon, thus the Ammonites. Now, where they live was kind of a precarious I'm not much on drawing maps, but you know what this means, I think. The Israelites dominated this area, and the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were over here. Now, over here was a huge desert, and the Ammonites were squeezed in right here between the two and a half tribes and the desert. And so really about the only place they had to grow was this way, invading at least this Gilead territory over here. Because you can't really grow toward the desert. It, at that time, would have been considered uninhabitable. Well, now what you see, interestingly, are many, many times in which the Ammonites tried to increase their territory by encroaching on the Israelite lands in Gilead. That's what's happening right here. Do you remember the first enemy that Saul faced? Nahash, the Ammonite king, who wanted to put out the right eye of the man that lived in Jabesh, Gilead, one of these cities over here? Well, he was trying to do the same thing. He was invading Gilead to expand his territory. just want to look at about three prophetic verses with you. Amos chapter 1 and verse 13, if you can't uh, find them, you can jot them down or just listen. 
But Amos 1.13, just to show you how common a tendency this was among the Ammonites. Amos 1.13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. It was still their national characteristic, cruelty toward Gilead to enlarge their borders. Then in Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 8, that's a really hard one to find, fourth book from the end of the Old Testament, I think, or something like that, Zephaniah 2.8, I've heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon with which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against their territory. Again, the Moabites and the Ammonites became arrogant against the territory of the Israelites. And then back in Jeremiah chapter uh, 49 and verse 2, Jeremiah 49, 2, Therefore, behold, talking about the Ammonites, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I shall cause a trumpet blast of war to be heard against Rabbah of the sons of Ammon, and it will become a desolate heap, and her towns will be set on fire. Then Israel will take possession of his possessors, says the Lord. And really, I should have read the first verse as well. Concerning the sons of Ammon, thus says the Lord, Does Israel have no sons, or has he no heirs? Why then has Malcolm take, taken possession of Gad and his people settled in its cities? Don't the Ammonites have any territory of their own that they've come over and taken the Israelite territory, in this case, some of the cities of Gad? Now, that just becomes sort of the norm for the Ammonites. Now, I think that's kind of interesting in a couple of senses. One is, isn't it interesting how you can have books all through the Old Testament, books as diverse as Judges, as 1 Samuel, as Amos, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah, and so forth, that all concur about this point. They all present this main image of the Ammonites as constantly trying to get territory from the Israelites in the land of Gilead. And, and I think that just shows you the inspiration of the Bible. It shows you the consistency of that. That, you know, they present an accurate historical picture, and the Ammonites didn't change a whole lot from generation to generation. The other thing I think is interesting, and uh, I've made this point in other ways, but I'll make it this way. There is so much to be gained by just delving into the Bible more and more and more. It was years before I ever knew anything like that about the Ammonites. You know, I think that's kind of interesting. It's kind of neat to see that. It gives you a little bit more depth when you're studying through a passage like this and you see what's going on with the Ammonites. But if all we ever do is just do a little, you know, superficial Bible reading now and then when we feel pressured to or just to satisfy our quota, we'll probably never find that out. We're going to have to really look. We're going to have to keep studying, keep reading. And keep studying, keep reading, not just Genesis and Matthew and Acts, but Zephaniah and Amos and Jeremiah and whatever. Because there's a lot to be learned from the Bible text. Well, let's look at what the dialogue is here. Look at verse 12 of Judges 11. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me, that you've come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon, as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan. Therefore return them peaceably now. 
Now, do you, do you hear the Ammonite argument? They're saying it's their territory that Israel took away from them when they conquered the land. Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon, and he makes three basic arguments. arguments. The first one's historical. He says in verse 15, And they said uh, to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not listen. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab and they camped beyond the Arnon, but they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through your territory, or uh, through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all the people and camped in Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the, land, into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them, so Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. Now, Notice carefully Jephthah's points. He says, first of all, Israel did not take any of the land of the descendants of Lot. Not any land from the Moabites and not any land from the Ammonites. Rather, Israel respected the international boundary lines and they requested permission to even cross over a territory that belonged to another nation. And when that nation didn't give them permission, they went around it. And furthermore, when they did fight, as in the case of Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, they fought only when they were attacked, and they took the land that they won in battle. So there, it was never Ammonite land. Notice the difference between Ammonite and Amorite. Those are two different things. They never took Ammonite land. They respected international boundaries. They took the land from Sihon, king of Heshbon, because he fought against them and because they conquered him. It was not Ammonite land to begin with, his historical argument. His second argument is the theological one, verse 23. Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Chemesh your God gives you to possess. So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess it. He says, God gave us the land. Don't we have the right to it? Wouldn't you take the land Chemosh gave you? If your God gave you some land, wouldn't you take it? Now that's kind of a curious statement in a couple of respects. First of all, Chemosh didn't have anything to do with giving the Ammonites their land. That was a figment of their imagination. And Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 19 
And when you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass them nor provoke them, for I will not give any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession for you, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. God gave the Ammonites their land. One chemos. Now, I don't know if Jephthah was just using this as kind of uh, an ad hominem argument. They think Chemosh gave them their land, and if they thought Chemosh gave it to them, they'd take it. Or if it's possible, Jephthah may have actually believed that all the various nations got their lands from their own gods. Remember, the quality of the judges is continuing to deteriorate. And we'll see that with Jephthah more in a minute. So it's possible Jephthah actually believed that these idol gods existed and that they give, gave them their land. I, I wouldn't argue that point either way, really. Uh, either he's just arguing from their perspective or he's not clear in his understanding of the uniqueness of God. But there's another problem with that. Normally Ammon's God was Milcom. Chemosh was Moab's God. So how do you deal with that? Well, let me suggest a couple things and move off of that point. I realize you have to, you might not have that problem. You might not have thought about that. But there's a couple of possibilities. It may just be that Ammon and Moab, both being the sons of Lot, were so closely aligned that they sort of shared the same gods. Or it may be that the Ammonites had conquered the Moabites and that they claimed their gods as theirs also. And that they were saying that the Moabites originally had that territory. And therefore, Chemosh, the god of the Moab, Moabites, had given the territory to Moab and then to the Ammonites when they conquered Moab. However that is, Jephthah said, our god gave us this land, we've got the right to it. Third argument, the argument based on precedent, verse 25. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel or did he ever fight against them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? I think that's a great argument. Why wait 300 years to suddenly make your claim? If Israel had taken your territory, why did it take 300 years for you to figure it out and finally come and complain? That doesn't make sense to me. So historically, they didn't take it from the Ammonites. Theologically, God gave it to them. They've got the right to it. And by precedent, they've had it for 300 years, and the Ammonites haven't claimed it in that length of time. So, verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord the judge judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. Now the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt give, indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now I want you to notice, first of all, that the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He's got power from the Lord to fight against the Ammonites. I don't believe God was behind selecting him as a judge, as a deliverer, 
but God actually was willing again to be merciful to the Israelites and empower Jephthah to deliver them. However, that was not sufficient for Jephthah. He tried to negotiate with God. Now, Jephthah is a hard negotiator. You remember when he negotiated with the Israelites in the first place about becoming their deliverer, that he argued with them and, and was able to negotiate a contract in which he'd become their head when he delivered them. You remember what he's just gotten through saying to the Ammonites. He's a pretty good talker. He's pretty good at trying to, to work things around to his advantage. It seems to me that he's using that sort of inbred natural technique of his on God. He's trying to sort of manipulate him. He's saying, all right, God, now if you'll just give me the victory, I'll sacrifice whatever comes out of my doors first to meet me. Really wasn't necessary. God's spirit had come on Jephthah. God is in supreme control, and we don't have to bargain with him to get his blessing. Impulsive vows are always destructive. And, and you know what happened as a result of this vow? God gave a great victory to Jephthah and the Israelites. But when we talk about this story, Really, our attention is on the foolish vow and its consequences. It really took away from the glory and honor of God in granting the victory. So it was really a very counterproductive thing that he made this vow. Now, some people argue about the nature of the vow. What was he, what was he saying here? Well, I want to suggest that I believe he was vowing to, to offer a human sacrifice. I base that on about three things. First of all, the word in the end of verse 31, I will offer it up as a burnt offering. That is the word used regularly in the Old Testament for the whole burnt offering, like in Leviticus 1. Secondly, I, it looks to me like when he says that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, Animals don't leave the house to greet a victorious returning army captain. You know, he's not thinking about some animal coming out to greet him, not his dog or something like that. He's, he's thinking about somebody who comes out to congratulate him. And furthermore, if all he was thinking about was just whatever animal might come out of his house, well, an animal sacrifice would really have not been much of a bargaining chip. They offered animal sacrifices all the time. It would have been quite common and almost understood that they'd offer some kind of animal to thank God for the victory, probably a whole lot of them. So that doesn't seem like, you know, it would have offered much. So I believe he has in mind that some person's going to come out and he's offering to sacrifice this person if God will give him the victory. Well, look at what happens. 32, so Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them with a very great slaughter from a roar to the entrance of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karaman. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter 
was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came about when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said to him, My father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you've said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. And she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me, go, let me alone two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. And it came about at the end of two months that she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Well, he wasn't really thinking that it would be his daughter. You know, I guess he expected a servant to come out. I don't know. And I take it she didn't know about the battle. So she comes out, excited about the victory, comes out to congratulate Daddy. And it's like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, I... It's not what I expected. And it was a terrible thing because she was his only child. So not only is he doing something that surely would be hard, no matter how many children you had, to sacrifice a child. This is his whole hope for his family tree. He's cutting off his descendants. And he's doing something that's just really despicable. He had delivered Israel from the Ammonites of people who sacrifice their children to their gods, and he turns around and does the very same thing. I believe this illustrates how Israel was being increasingly canonized, if I can make that a word. They were becoming more and more like those nations that were around them. They were acting like Ammonites when it's all said and done. And I think, if anything, more despicable is what Jephthah says to his daughter in verse 35. He tries to blame her. He says, you brought me very low. He says, you're among those who trouble me. It's all your fault. Well, it wasn't really all her fault, was it? It was him that made the foolish vow. She came out as a good, loyal daughter to congratulate him. And you know, there's a lesson in that for us. There's lots of parents who will do that with their children. Who will blame them for their own mistakes. Have you never done that as a parent? You felt bad because you did something wrong. And you kicked your kid in exchange for that. That, that was his second mistake. Hey, you know, when we do something wrong, at least we ought to be men and women enough to take our own personal responsibility for it. Not turn around and blame some innocent victim, in this case his daughter. The lesson, of course, in this story, I think, above all things, we shouldn't try to bargain with God. We, we shouldn't be into this thing, well, well, God, if you'll do this for me, I'll do that for you. And even something that would be totally outrageous. We don't need to bargain. We need to humble ourselves before God and repent and turn and ask God's help. But we don't need 
these kinds of foolish vows. Well, look at chapter 12 and verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. Now, the Ephraimites were over here. Jephthah, the Gileadites were over here. There are increasing sectional divisions and rivalries between them. This isn't the first time we've seen that. Back in Judges chapter 8, there was a problem that, that Gideon had with the Ephraimites complaining that they weren't called to the battle against Midian. But Gideon gave a soft answer. He praised the Ephraimites and averted civil war. This time, the Ephraimites are threatening to do more than what Jephthah had already done to himself, kill his own daughter. They're threatening to burn his whole house down. And uh, him too. Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to meet me this day to fight against me? <laughs> that wasn't quite Gideon's answer of chapter 8, was it? He basically praises his own courage and initiative and points the finger at the Ephraimites for being too cowardly or lazy to help. So he doesn't exactly give a soft answer that appeases their wrath. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim, and it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Say now, Shibboleth. But he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. Now the Ephraimites, they taught people of Gilead saying, well, you're just fugitives from Ephraim. You guys are a bunch of refugees. You'd like to be over here on the good side of the Jordan, wouldn't you? <laughs> they, just, they just rub salt in the wound. So what Jephthah and the Gileadites do, they, they, take, they capture the places along the Jordan River where you could cross it, the fords of the Jordan. And that way, the only way the Ephraimites can get back across to their home is there at those places where you could ford the river. And of course, they all claimed to be Gileadites and not Ephraimites, so they wouldn't get killed. They had an easy way of determining which they really were. They just asked them to say the word shibboleth. Probably that word means an ear of corn, but what it means is really not important. The Ephraimites couldn't say it the way the Gileadites said it. They had an accent. They had different accents. And uh, it's, it, this is a very easy point to illustrate in Portuguese because they do the very same thing. Um, for, for me, the word God in, in Portuguese is Deus. But for somebody from Rio, it would be Deus. They can't say S, they say Sh. And that's the way they were doing here, except it's just the opposite. The Gileadites would say Shibble. 
Well, when the Ephraimites said it, it came out Sybil. They just had a difference in accent. It's kind of like uh, the difference be between saying to save the queen or to shave the queen. It makes quite a difference. And uh, so they were able to detect which ones were Ephraimites and which ones were Gileadites. And they killed 42,000 fellow Israelites. That more Israelites died at Jephthah's hand than anywhere else in the book, including by the hand of enemies. This deliverer that the people chose became their destroyer. The Israelites were turning into their own worst enemies. It looks to me like God was basically just kind of allowing the nation to self-destruct. He's letting them kill each other off. And look at verse 7. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. Did you notice that the time of peace, six years, was a lot shorter than the time of oppression the 18 years had been back in chapter 10. Things are going from bad to worse for the Israelites. And Jephthah, well, he sort of illustrates what happened. When a nation chooses its own deliverer, they get a guy like Jeff, who sacrifices his own daughter, who kills off 42,000 of his own country. It's what happens when they just try to use God and not really submit to God and turn to God. And this last part illustrates the passage I've made reference to a couple of times. In Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up, stirs up anger. This is a prime event to illustrate. <coughs> How do you deal with controversy? Well, if you want to lead to peace, then you think before you speak. And you speak gently. You don't say something that just adds fuel to the fire. You don't retaliate. You know, that's what we tend to do. There, there, we get in an argument, and we tend to just say things that are really harsh because we've been hurt. We're upset. And so what happens? The argument just grows. just gets worse. It's exactly what Jeff and the Ephraimites did. They just started trading insults back and forth, and before you know it, they were fighting each other. When I do what I know to do, what the Lord tells me to do, in giving a gentle answer, it helps. If you, if, if you see somebody is really upset with you, do two or three things. Think really carefully before you say anything. And try to say it in the most constructive way that you can. Lower your voice. You know, if I talk like this, I sound like I'm angry. If I talk like this, then it's a little harder to get really upset because I've lowered my voice and I'm talking more slowly and I'm trying to think before I speak. If we'll employ the technique of Proverbs, what Gideon did in Judges 8, not what Jephthah did in Judges 12, we'll be a whole lot better off. 
Well, look at the rest of Judges 12 here. Now, Ibzon of Bethlehem judged Israel after him, and he had 30 sons and 30 daughters whom he gave in marriage outside the family, and he brought in 30 daughters from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzon died and was buried in Bethlehem. (laughs) Kind of ironic. Among all the 12 judges in the book of Judges, daughters are mentioned only in connection with Jephthah and Ibzon. He had 30 of them. And I think it's sort of showing the contrast between Jephthah, who used to have one, and killed her. In contrast, the next judge has 30. And now he's got 30 daughters-in-law, too. And then verse 11, now Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel after him, and he judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ijalon in the land of Zebulun. Now Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perathonite judged Israel after him. And he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. And he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perathonite, died and was buried in Perathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. There's several of these minor judges. And uh, we don't know a whole lot about them. But I'll tell you, what we know about this Abdon may tell you something about what's going on again. What's Abdon's claim to fame? A big harem and lots of donkeys for his sons and grandsons. An emphasis on wealth, power, family. No comment about spiritual concerns or qualities on the parts of these judges. Because spirituality is not much of a characteristic of the Israelites now. They've gone way downhill from the beginning of the book of Judges. And I think the final judge that we'll see in the book, Samson, just climaxes. If you can, uh, there needs to be a different word, I guess, but, but climax is the descent. That it, it really reaches its lowest point in the cycles of the judges. When people start leaving the Lord, they just get worse and worse. Jeff illustrates that and gives us a lot of good lessons. And I hope that these lessons are helpful to you. You can go back through and pick out some of the points that we made and think about them. Uh, But many of these judges illustrate more for us changes we need to make in our lives. Negative examples. But we learn a lot from negative examples so that we don't make the same mistakes that they did. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we encourage you to come tonight while we stand and sing.